This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello, this is the Box Podcast. I'm Matt Jolly. Now, on the podcast, quite a lot, you'll hear me saying the politicians should have done this, they should have done that. Well, coming up on today's episode, you'll be able to hear what happened when I tried my hand at actual politics. Henry Zeppelin, you'll know, chief political correspondent at the Times, regular on the podcast. Uh, him and I went to a play. It's called Crisis. What crisis? It's, a, it's an immersive experience where the audience have to try and save the Callaghan government in 1979. We try our hand at negotiating with unions, the media, uh, whipping MPs, making the numbers add up in the Treasury, and uh, then there's a big vote, and we have to see if uh, if we manage to save the government or not. I'll be honest, we weren't very good at the media side of things, uh, but you can hear exactly what happens. You'll hear from Henry and the director and the writer behind the play. Uh, that's coming up in our main thing on the podcast. But first, it's our columnist panel, and on a Friday, it is Times columnist Melanie Reid and James Forsyth. Britain needs the royal family more than ever. That's what you call swimming against the tide in the week when Prince Andrew's been making all of the news. Explain why uh, the royals are so important. Well, I think whatever you think of our constitutional arrangements, I think the last few years have shown the benefit of having a a branch of a state that can rise above politics. Uh, Brexit has obviously put a particular strain on our relations with our closest uh, neighbours, and in particular the French and the Irish. And I think one of the benefits of the royal family is that they can, through, through their visits and their work, act as a kind of subtle reminder about the a the depth of the ties that that bind the, the UK to its neighbours, and also that everyone is still going to have to live on the same continent and be neighbours at the end of all this. So, however tempting it may be, the two sides should not fall out uh, completely over Brexit. And on the, you make the interesting point as well is that Prince Charles is his sort of time has come. You know, all that talking to his pot plants and uh, wanging on about the environment when nobody was particularly interested. Now he's absolutely, uh, you know, this is his moment. Yeah, and I think if you if you think about his interest, as you say, his interest in sustainability, global warming, these all used to be mocked. You know, when he talked about 100 months to save the planet, everyone thought he was, you know, th- th- there was a certain amount of derision in the press. I think if you look at uh, events since then, you can, it, it is far clear, it's far 
he's the point he is trying to make is, is almost being made for him. And I think you, I think that is. I also think there is an element here that, that lots of people always say, oh, "What's the point of a Commonwealth?" It is, it is purely an anachronism. I actually think that it has a particularly valuable role when it comes to discussing climate change because it actually actually contains. All, all the different people that you need to get to move in some ways, or examples of those countries. You've obviously got Britain, the first industrialised country. You've got India, a country that is emitting more as it develops and obviously understandably wants to develop. And you've also got those small island nations that are most vulnerable to climate change. And so it is actually a forum in which I think there is a chance to make some progress on these kind of issues. What about you, Melanie? Where do you stand on the royals? Yeah, well, I think... I, I... Charles is a genuine environmentalist, so I don't think there's any doubt about that. And I think um, uh, Prince William is also proving himself to be very interested, uh, and 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 is is building on that. Um, I think I think there's a kind of there's an interesting psychology here because, you know, politicians are neutral, but I suppose the royal family are the closest thing we have to to unifiers. You know, it's that sort of quasi it's almost a quasi religious thing you know they're above politics they represent something that's bigger and less venal and and much and much wider and more universal um than 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 uh, politicians who just want it, politicians always want something you know they aren't benign whereas of course the royals always want something too but but it's a far less um it's a far less obvious thing we can be far less cynical about it and I think I think the royals can can really build on this, and I think I think it's also a, a great distraction. They will see it as a great distraction to have a role like this, important role with with gravitas that that takes them away from all the the gossip and psychodrama of you know of, of Andrew and <laughs> and obviously Harry's book coming next year, which is you know so they need this as much as. Uh, politicians need them right now, I think. Yeah, it's it's, it's mutually beneficial for them all, all to all to have that role. I tell you what, as you've mentioned, uh, Harry's memoir that's coming out, uh, Melanie. I'm, uh, I'm not sure that they have much in common with Len McCluskey's, uh, the outgoing United uh, uh, United General Secretary. But there is something about we do love a good mem. Do we love a good political memoir, uh, James Ooh. or Melanie? Yes. Do you, do you bother yeah, reading them? Uh, I well, I I read and review a lot. I mean, Assassination by Memoir is just great. Just great. I mean, I'm I'm sure James will know lots of the political ones, but um, I mean, I I, I ju- I'm just actually reviewing at the moment Billie Jean King's um, autobiography, which is she really, you know, she lets loose on Margaret Court, the great uh, her great rival for for the way she was always being beastly about. She's now totally beastly about gay people, and um, you had John Humphreys. Look at John Humphreys, you know, destroying the posh, left leaning. Metropolitan Boys Boys Club that was running the BBC. Um, it's it's great great stuff. What about you, James? Um, how how? <laughs> I mean, the trouble is that politics does produce a lot of very boring memoirs. Yes, and I think what well, I think the other thing that is, causes problems for memoirs is newspaper serialisations. The, the the danger is that all the juicy stuff it comes <laughs> out in the newspaper serialisation, and then you you diligently read the book and find that you could have saved quite a bit of time if you just read the newspaper serialisation of it. Um, I think what's 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 amusing about the Len McCluskey book is it's a kind of it it, it seems to be a very clever marketing ploy in that they seem to have blacked out various passages, um, and there's nothing like um, blacking out a passage to make everyone think that that what's underneath must be. <laughs> 
truly explosive. Um, and, and I think it's, it's, a, it's, it's another reminder that, that, that Len, Len McCluskey might be a kind of firebrand trade genius, but he's also quite a canny capitalist who knows how to, how to work the market system to his advantage. Yeah, the, the worst thing about a newspaper serialisation is when you read it and you think, this is boring. And you think, if that's the, if that's the best bits they've taken out of the book, I'm definitely not going to bother tackling this. Um, but what do you, what, who, whose memoirs do you think have been particularly good? I was thinking that, because Len McCluskey's going to drop his uh, memoir on, uh, I think, the eve of the Labour Party conference to make it as explosive as possible. Um, uh, and so uh, and I, the one I really sticks in my mind is... Was, uh, um, uh, Damien McBride's book about being a spin doctor for Gordon Brown, which again he dropped in the middle of the Labour Party conference. He was uh, the biggest uh, name in town that um, uh, that conference, and it sort of completely overshadowed everything that was going on there. Um, which 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 political biographies do you think were particularly good? I, I think that, I think the McBride one is is so good because it is very honest. Um, he's not trying to create his reputation for the history books. There's that amazing bit when he reveals that he used to um, leak stories to the papers and insist that Gordon Brown's rivals were written up in a positive light, which seems counterintuitive. Until he goes on to explain that there was no better way to make number 10 suspicious of these people than to have them written up in the newspaper as, as, as heroically standing up to number 10 on some issue. And, it, and it, 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 it's just... His revealing of his devilment um, and the fact that he doesn't care about revealing the, the, the dubious ethics of his behaviour, that is what makes it so compelling. Because sometimes you read memoirs and you can see that, you know, that, that, that people are trying to obey the Churchill dictum that you know, history will be kind to me because I will write it myself. And, they, and they're very self-consciously writing for the history books. I think it, it, I think it is actually those people who really don't care what history thinks about them. You know, Damien McBride, Alan Clark. These are the people who write the most, um, the most revealing memoirs, I think. Does it also help if it's someone who's a bit more junior? Because actually, prime ministerial memoirs are a bit dull. Yeah, but, but because obviously, the, the, any prime ministerial any prime ministerial memoir is going to be an exercise in self justification. Yes, um, and I think it is. It is your Chris Mullins, as you say. It is those kind of people who can be much franker about you know or what went wrong, or or, or they can kind of laugh at the. At, at where they were in the food chain. I think if you're a prime minister, your, your memoir is inevitably going to concentrate on, on, on trying to kind of redefine uh, how your premiership is, is seen. You know, I suspect that when Theresa May gets around to writing hers, you know, we'll find that, you know, that her premiership was, was far more concerned with you know, issues that she obviously did care about, like modern slavery, but there'll be far more on that, I suspect, than on, on the numerous Brexit votes um, which, which went against her <laughs> and the like. I mean, I, I, think this is, I think this is always the challenge, which is that you... you a good memoir needs to be written by someone who doesn't really care that much what posterity is going to say about them. Well, isn't that why Alan Clark was so brilliant? Because he was a total anarchist in that sense. He didn't <laughs> give a damn. He really no. did not care. And and didn't care who we insulted or how politically incorrect he was. And it was glorious. Yeah, and um, I, actually, more recently, Alan Duncan's very similar, you know, actually being quite honest and blunt. Or the, even the Sasha Swire diaries, um, yeah, you know, quite happily yeah. torching uh, all bridges uh, to uh, to go back. Yeah, I'm not sure. Um, is there any? I'm not sure if there's any news on whether or not Theresa May is going to write a memoir, or indeed if well, it, you know that Gavin Barwell's memoirs, her chief of staff's memoirs, are coming out shortly. But, um, but I think there's no news yet on Theresa. I think Theresa May is um, is, is and unless it's all this, is actually making rather a lot of money on the speech making circuit at the moment. So I suspect that is um, taking precedence. I think you could. Well. I mean, we, we can look forward, can't we, to at some point um, Dominic Cummings's and uh, and and also to Boris Johnson 
Well, Dominic comes, Dominic comes he's he's sort of writing it in in real time. He'll just have to edit down <laughs> all of his blogs. Well, uh, I would like to be a sub editor on that book. <laughs> <laughs> I think you could. I think you could. Uh, I think you could be well be right. Um, one of the things I wanted to uh, uh, touch um, on with with you both is the uh, the more um, we've had uh, exam results out this week, and every year there's like oh we have a big push this year to try and get people to speak modern languages. And uh, it doesn't seem to be uh, working. Germans suffered a dramatic fall overall to uh, the number of choosing uh, foreign languages flatlined, although Spanish does seem to be up. Um, is this a problem? I mean, do we need to be... I mean, it slightly goes back to um, James's point about sort of reconnecting with our European colleagues. It's not ideal if we're all just going to just decide, well, now, after Brexit, we don't need to learn any languages. We're just going to stay here. It's... it's- well, on the practical front, it's going to cost the economy billions. I mean, they've estimated that if, if we if if we shrink our, our hinterland of our children like this, we're not going to have the skills they need to to, to for outreach. But I also think we we impoverish ourselves culturally. Um, this is sort of flattening. Uh, uh, oh, we just live on the internet because it's all in English. Um, and and you know, you remember well. Charlemagne, the, the 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 French, the great French king, the early Middle Ages. He said, "If if you speak another language, you inhabit another world," and that's such a such a wonderful thing that because it means that you it opens up the world to you and you have you have more identity, you have much more understanding. And I think there is a real danger that we become more and more insular. Uh, we we it's it's worth fighting for. I think languages are really worth fighting for. What do you think, James? Do you speak any languages? I, I, I can speak in a bad restaurant, French and Spanish. Um, I, I think the, uh, the I, I think Melanie is completely right, and I think it has a sort of real consequences too. I mean, at the moment, for example, there is an absolutely fascinating election in Germany. Um, you've got the, the CDU with a, a weak candidate falling. You've got the Greens in second place, narrowly ahead of the SPD, who have the candidate who, who is who is regarded by the electorate as, as, as the best potential chancellor, and if this election was taking place in, in, in an English-speaking country, I think Westminster would be fascinated by it. And there'd be huge discussions about the ramifications for the UK of who wins or what the coalition formations are. But because so few people, and I include myself in Westminster, can read the German press, we, cannot, we, 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 we really don't know very much about it at all. And I think it is, I think one of the reasons why... Um, uh, we are so much more interested in 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 U.S. politics and than the politics of our neighbours is is it's just it is so easy just to to read about what's going on in the U.S. to understand it to follow it, while as you know our, our lack of language skills does act as a kind of obstacle to 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 understanding in detail the the politics of 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 of, uh, of other European countries. I mean that I think that is a real consequence. I also think one of the things that is difficult is, and I, you can see this, you know, trying to persuade teenagers, as Melanie says, when you know the European Union, even after Brexit, still conducts its business in largely in English, it, it's really hard to persuade. But I think one of the things that you you find as you grow older is, you know, one of my big regrets is I kind of gave up all languages at seventeen. I really wish I hadn't done that now. Um, yeah. And but it, and and it's you know and then. And it also, I think that's one of the strong cases for learning languages at school is how how much you, you, you whatever good intentions you might try, trying to learn a language on your own outside is, is just one of those things that I think, you know, very few people have, a, have the time or the self-discipline to, to manage. Those for Scythe Money to Read there, you can read them both in the Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box where you can get your first month for free. Uh, right, coming up, what happened when we tried to actually save the government? 
Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast now. Crisis, what crisis? For the first time, I'm joined in the studio by actual Henry Zeffman. How are you? I'm very well, actual Matt, surely. <laughs> this is all very impressive. Lots of shiny lights and everything. Much more glamorous than the back, back streets of Washington, I used to call you from. At exactly right. So re- regular listeners will know, Henry, when, when Times Radio launched last summer, was the Washington correspondent of the Times. Uh, and how many uh, appearances on Times Radio have you made? I've actually stopped counting, but I, but but for the <laughs> after my appraisal in which I dropped in the number of appearances <laughs> I'd made, but it was it was it was over one hundred and fifty at that point. Yeah, you were appearing. You made more individual appearances than anyone else. I think it's probably probably fair, fair to say. Now, chief political correspondent of uh, of the Times, and I will explain why you're here. But you've got a TV show that could be remade uh, or a film. It's a film. It's a film. What is it? Gangs of. Newport. Very good. Well done. It took me well a long done. time. No, everyone, in, uh, everyone in the gallery is shaking their heads. Uh, <laughs> a special mention to Pete in Southie, who's been in touch, and suggested The Life of Hewish Episcopi, uh, which is fine. But it's, it's pronounced Hewish Episcopi. So I appreciate the effort uh, to try and include the name of my school uh, in a film, but uh, that's not working. You can keep this coming at 87222, start to mention the word Times. You can tweet me at Times Radio. My current favourite, I think is probably True Romance, uh, which a couple of people have sent in. Uh, if you could do better than that, 87222, start your with the word times. Right, now then, we are going back to 1979. The government is facing a vote of no confidence. James Callaghan has a, vo- has a majority of zero. The unions are walking out. Inflation is soaring. Police are losing control of the, se- of the streets. So could Henry Zeffman and I save the government? Well, that's what we did uh, one night this week. Crisis, what crisis? It's a brilliant, immersive theatre experience for political nerds, which is why we thought you'd all enjoy it, uh, where the audience negotiates with unions, runs the Treasury, whips MPs, and there's a different outcome every night. In a moment, we will hear from the play's director and writer. But first, let's take a listen to what happened when Henry and I tried our hands at sort of crossing from just telling politicians you're doing it all wrong to uh, trying to actually do it ourselves. Let's take a listen. So, Henry, here we are. We are in the... I 
think it's like the headquarters of the Labour Party, with various areas set aside. There's an economic area, there's a press area, there's a sort of civil disobedience area. We're sitting on some sort of bright orange 1970s felt sofa. In front of you on the coffee table, on the very 1970s sort of uh, fake wood coffee table, there's uh, some London Underground maps that you've just really struggled to pack away because you've never seen a map before. Uh, and a copy of The Sun with uh, on the front page, Crisis, What Crisis? It's actually a recreation of the actual Sun front page. What's the date on the paper? 22nd of January, 1979. And it begins, Sun-tanned Premier Jim Callaghan breezed back into Britain yesterday and asked, Crisis? What crisis? Uh, which is an actual uh, genuine front page of The Sun. Lorries, shops, jobs, chaos, and Jim blames the press. And uh, what we're basically going to do now, over, over like a couple of hours, is we're going to be thrown into the politics of January 1979 uh, in the heart of the Labour government and the Labour Party and trying to avoid uh, a real crisis, which for you and I, Henry, as political journalists, is a terrifying prospect because our job is to just sit and go, oh, I wouldn't have done that when somebody makes a terrible hash of something. And uh, it could all go horribly wrong. Welcome and thank you for uh, assisting us here. Plucked as we have taken you from your various Whitehall environments where you assist as political secretaries uh, in the various Labour ministries that you all work in. But we do need you out of the way because tonight we are doing a deal. A deal that is going to get the last trade union standing, or should I say striking, back to work. The lorry drivers are not moving still. People are starting to worry about when the shops are going to get refilled. And we have a plan. We have a deal on the table. George Deakin, the General Secretary of ERTU, is on his way to get yeah. that news out there on our terms, not only to the wider world, but also to the PLP, the Parliamentary Labour Party, which is rather good news indeed, because we have another problem that I'm sure some of you are aware of. The Leader of the Opposition has decided that it is time for her to, no pun intended, strike. A motion of no confidence has been put before the House. Time to get to work. Henry, I feel like we want to go and deal with the press. I think uh, having been exasperated by so many press offices in our time. It's, it's time to go and do it properly. Uh, yeah, and I can't be doing with economics or, no, no, no. Uh, or planning. So let, let's let's go and do let's do the media. We aren't writing the headlines. Right, the press hate it when you write the headlines for them. However, we do need to know what we're saying. We need to make sure that we've got nice snappy things that are easy for us to remember and easy for the public to remember as well. Anyway, this is terrible. We're having to come up with, with successful <laughs> political slogans. It's much easier being rude about other people's. Do we trust the lorries? We are the lorries, aren't we? Are we the lorries? No. We are not lorries, oh, just to be no. very clear. <laughs> I'm sorry, I didn't follow that bit. We're the, okay. the Labour government. Do you remember, Henry? Morning, Henry, pay attention. Neither the avian kinds nor the road. Red, red, red lorry, yellow lorry. We're team lorry. Red, red lorry. Red lorry. Red lorry, get the lolly. The lolly? Lolly. Lolly. And we are emphatically not lorries. <laughs> yeah, we've got an early edition of the front cover of the standard. Yeah. 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 Hide your head. Apparently, all we have to say. Yeah. <laughs> Captain! Good mate, friends, gather up, please. 
that no one's done as good a deal as us. Henry, we have just pushed up inflation by 2%. Yeah, but it was 2%, 5% or 10%. Which is more than the... This is what the public (laughs) have to understand. It's very hard. (laughs) Why can't the public and the press just be more understanding of the difficult decisions that hard-working politicians have to make? Fancy themselves on the radio, let me know. Do you want to do the radio? Yeah, you might as well. You I'll, I'll do the radio. Right. Excellent, we've got a couple of people for the radio. Perfect. Matt and Manira, you're going on the radio, all right? I'm going to try and get you on with Bob Holness. Now, it's a good slot. Uh, it's going to be probably in about 20 minutes' time. And, uh, and he's going to come at you with some very difficult questions because he's all about getting people having that big conversation, right? I don't think I've ever used a family. That was the so we said to Joan, they're calling her Joan Maynard, I think it's Joan Maynard. The job is yours. Stop. Congratulations on the promotion, comrade. Stop. Look forward to your vote with government. Stop. I think that's someone confusing a fax machine with a telegram. <laughs> you didn't have to write the word stop on a fax machine uh, when sending a fax. I don't know where the media man's gone. We were promised, we were promised Bob Holmes. <laughs> I'm just being told that Bob Holmes is going to poke and prod me quite hard. I think we should do some whipping. Okay, we're happy to talk to David Steele. Or whatever. We'll we'll go and get pied on board. So we'll take that. Very good. Alright, come on Henry. Alright. So we need to now go to the uh, Treasury and ask for the cash. To give them Welsh language TV. We'll basically win the day. You want money for a Welsh language television channel? We think it's very important. You just said it was to get plied on board. Who are Welsh? Well, yes. They are. The clue is in the name. We've got the money for plied. Who do we call? You ring Gwynplaine Evans. Uh, All right. Where's the phone? All the, all the phone lines are taken. We're going to lose because of the phones. We need the phone. It's very important. Could you put me through to Gwyn for Evans from Plyde Cymru, please? That's right. Thank you so much. Oh, good evening, Gwyn for Evans. I'm calling from uh, the, uh, the government. Are you well? Are you well? You've been better. Oh, well, let me see what I can do to try and make things a bit happier for you. Uh, yes, I think I'm um, given, given just to show our commitment to Wales, we are willing to announce on the television uh, that we will launch a Welsh language television channel. It's been lovely doing business with you. Bovadar. Well, this is good. If we, so the, the, the school's on the doors now. The government have got 310 and the opposition have got 312. But we, if we get our three blind people in, if they get on the telly and announce 
on national television that we're going to launch a Welsh language television <laughs> channel, then um, that will make 313 and we'll win the vote. If it's anything you want said on the television, now's the time to tell them. Welsh language television. Let them know in the studio. Welsh language television. Voting has just finished in the House of Commons. The motion of no confidence was put forward by the Leader of the Opposition, Mrs Thatcher, and the tellers have just informed the Speaker of the final result. In an unexpected move, former Labour MP Reg Prentice crossed the floor to vote with the Government once again, and a large number of Conservative MPs were not present for the vote. There were 319 votes for the Government and 306 votes for the That was amazingly loud. Uh, so, Henry Zephman, we saved the government. We did. Um, and proof that we absolutely are right to be as critical of politicians as we are <laughs> in our day jobs because we're so much better at it. <laughs> if only Theresa May had appointed me chief whip. And actually, the big, my big takeaway from it, and particularly for the purposes, and uh, speaking of Theresa May especially, given that it was, this is basically her experience with entire government, uh, is that at the end of the day, it all comes down to the politics. The only thing we really needed to focus on was the whipping. Yeah, it was actually a genuinely interesting political lesson, uh, which is, you know, somewhere in the other side of the theatre, there was this big conversation about civil unrest in Dagenham and something somewhere in Wales. And it did not matter at all. We won the day because we had a majority in the House of Commons. And actually, genuinely, that is what happened uh, in those crazy years of Theresa May's government. What was going on in the country was pretty much irrelevant, except insofar as it made some Conservative MPs quite anxious. She had a parliamentary majority for a long time. That basically drained away, and that was the moment at which she was replaced as Prime Minister. So that was, uh, that was how we actually got on. But it was an extraordinarily complex thing that they were doing so that just to explain that if, when we were negotiating with the unions if we gave the unions a very big pay rise that pushed up inflation uh, if we managed to hold that down then the stock market was going up and down there's a treasury index there was a sort of monster spreadsheet behind the scenes uh, updating it all and in a moment we're going to hear from the plays director and the writer about how they made it work and why <laughs> what made them think i'll tell you what will be really popular an immersive theatrical experience about the uh, callahan government in 1979 turns out it's really good we'll speak to owen smith and tom Black next here on Times Radio. It's Matt Jolly in association with GoDaddy, providing the helping tools you need to grow your business online. Matt Jolly on Times Radio with GoDaddy, providing all the help and tools you need to grow your business online. Hey, good morning. It's Matt Jolly on Times Radio. So, this week, Henry Zeffman and I, with producer Chloe, uh, went to play Crisis What Crisis in a, in a brilliant, immersive theatrical experience where you're sort of thrown into the Labour Party in 1979 trying to save the Callaghan government, which, which we did quite comprehensively, Henry. We did very well. But let's speak to how on earth do you come up with that and how do you make it all work with all the sort of various moving parts? It is a creation of the new Diorama Theatre and uh, we can now speak to uh, the play's director, Owen Smith. Hi, Owen. 
Hello there. And the writer, Tom Black, and writer and star, I should say. Tom Black, hi, Tom. Uh, hello there. Uh, sorry to open with a correction, but actually Owen's very polite. His name's Owen Kingston rather than Owen Smith. <laughs> Owen, well, right, well, right. That's, He's yeah. not the former Labour MP, Owen Smith. As uh, as that yes, I think that's what it was. We've, him, got, we've sure. got obscure <laughs> Labour MPs on the brain. Uh, that's, <laughs> that's understandable. Uh, I apologise, Owen. I apologise. Not to worry. So, first of all, whose idea was this? That's, that, that's, that's my sort of first question. Well, originally it came from Tom, uh, and we just got finished in a, another show about uh, set during the Second World War, and Tom uh, and I were talking about what we were, what we might want to do next. And, and Tom originally pitched this as a board game idea, mm. uh, the idea that we could create a, a board game set in the in the late seventies about about that very specific period of history. Uh, and he he was sort of explaining how he thought it might work, and I said, well, "Why don't we just make a show?" Uh, and and and, and, do and I say this, well, because yeah. no one would buy any tickets, Owen. <laughs> um, but um, as you very kindly said, Matt, it turned out there was a, there was an audience for this kind of thing, and Owen, um, you know, had the had the gumption to say, "Well, let's give this a damn good go." And uh, yeah, we we ended up uh, throwing what you saw together, and um, yeah, it, it turns out that actually the show is whenever we put it on, topical in its own way. Uh, you've talked in your feature there about um, the Theresa May government, obviously, when we first put it on in 2019. That kind of Brexit deadlock in Parliament was all on people's minds. And now that it's back now, obviously, that's somewhat in the past. But obviously, with, with COVID and the government, you know, scrambling to respond to an unexpected emergency, there are sort of different themes that come to the fore with, with every audience. And Owen, you're the, the, the spreadsheet mastermind. Is that right? Not quite. Tom's the one that actually wrote the spreadsheet. Uh, so when we, we first made a, the very, very first prototype of the show, I'd come up with a lot of mechanics, uh, the, uh, you know, the things that you see in the economy, for example, about the, the treasury and, uh, and inflation and so on. And we, we kind of worked out how to how to do all that on paper. But on the very first test, we very quickly realised we couldn't just hold all of that information in our heads. We needed a way of, uh, of being able to, to bring it all together and see every, the state of the show at a glance and also make sure that we were tracking things properly and that things didn't fall through the net. And so Tom went away with his with his uh, visual basic head on and uh, and came up with this incredible spreadsheet full of macros, which has uh, has has revolutionised how we do our work, really. And, and, and then the, my own is behind the scenes operating it. Yes, it all happen yeah. live. And that's yeah. a, and that's the thing. So how how do you go about directing something, Owen? Where um, there are so many moving parts and so many. I mean, how many different endings are there? There's four broad endings to this, uh, although a lot of variation. Uh, it, it, the honest answer is it's really hard. <laughs> it's hard to try and track all that stuff and then make it have a meaningful impact on the show and get audiences to understand that the decisions they're making really are affecting what's going on. Um, but we, we spent quite a long time developing how to do this sort of work. And the very first show that we did in this manner was set during an alternate history Second World War, where the audience get the chance to be uh, to be the war cabinet and see off a German invasion. So we played around with the Operation Sea Line idea of, of Britain being invaded during the war, and we did that immediately uh, after the, the after Brexit uh, after the Brexit vote. So it was actually 2017. So it was about a year later that the show went on, uh, but that was a kind of a response uh, by us to to how people were talking about. Um, uh, the uh, Churchill and invoking the spirit of Churchill as a, uh, a kind of a, a totem for, for Brexit. Um, and so we just wanted to give British people that experience of being invaded 
<laughs> because <laughs> that's the thing that separates us from the rest of the continent, you know, um, uh, that, that memory of the war. Uh, and so then we developed this method of trying to track how audiences were making decisions and then giving them responses to those decisions dynamically so that the show wasn't just on on rails and, uh, you know, most theatre has to be on rails, but we wanted to use that live response, responsiveness that the actors could have in the moment uh, to give uh, things, to bend the show around the audience, really, and to make it unique every night. What are the weirdest endings you've ended up with? Because ours was actually pretty mainstream. In fact, the crowd we were among basically seemed to decide that Jim Callahan should behave like Margaret Thatcher did <laughs> the next year and, and go full monetarist. I, mean, that, I don't think it's giving too much away to say there were quite a few people who work for the current Labour Party who were there and came along with us we on the journey of, of, of pursuing, uh, pursuing a Thatcherite policy of standing up to the unions, keeping inflation low and, and uh, watching the, the stock market boom. Absolutely. Well, we, we yeah, we, we do have, as Owen says, there's there's four broad endings, but lots of different variation. One example of that is, as, as you say, you you had a fairly healthy win in the in the vote, vote of no confidence, uh, but you did it um, at uh, well at perhaps the left's view would be at the cost of the Labour Party's soul, for example. Um, <laughs> we get some people along who are very sort of proudly, you know, moving forward, you know, creating new Labour early and so on. Um, there are other people who see that in a very different light. Um, but uh, you can, there are other ways to maybe just hold the line and sort of maybe just eke out a very narrow win, but you do sort of keep the social contract going, try to maintain the post-war consensus, but that is a lot harder because, of course, it would have been a lot harder in 1979 to do that. Um, similarly, you can, as, as I'm sure you gathered, you can lose the vote, and if, if things go truly chaotic and you completely lose control, uh, let's just say certain certain members of the business community and the armed forces decide that they might be able to do a better <laughs> job than the government, if you if you take my meaning. But you know what, actually, the thing is, because what we, what we do sort of as political commentators and journalists uh, a lot of the time is just sort of in the context of, well, that's not worked out how they wanted it to work. When you are suddenly faced with decision, well, what do you actually think, pers- you know, my own personal political view of what do you think should happen? I, I got the feeling that lots of people were, were a bit sort of conflicted on the one hand, they thought that they were of the left or of the Labour Party, but suddenly they were like, well, we don't yeah. want to give... Actually, maybe we shouldn't give the unions everything they're demanding. And you, you, you do feel like you're having that sort of personal conflict live during the course of... Actually, I mean, it is also a lot of fun. We should also um, mention as well, Henry, the your experience of discovering some old technology. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was, I was very impressed, Matt, that it turned out that you had uh, uh, used one of those... I don't even know what they're called, the old style phones where you have to push around the dial. That that took some getting used to. Also, one of the one of our fellow sort of fairly young uh, audience members uh, broke the fax machine at one point, uh, which was uh, quite amusing. In fact, he kept saying, I, I need to I need to send a fax to Joan Maynard and it won't work. Um which was uh, that is the authentic surreal. 1970s experience. Yes, and the <laughs> the the, um, yeah. the the dial phones. The, That's what it's called. The, yeah. I can, I did, yeah. Yeah. yeah, rotary dial. The, phones, the rotary yeah. dial phones completely mm. baffled Henry. And, and honestly, <laughs> the, the set it was incredible. The the, the set. Well, I suppose it is a set. You know the um, the all of the furniture, the phones, the fax machine, the posters on the wall. You really did feel like you were right in it. And and then uh, you know my opportunity to go on LBC and speak to Bob Holness was 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 just too much. It was just much too exciting. And then generally by the end, I, I, when we were watching the, the, the sort of the, the climax and the, the TV broadcast and, the, and, the, uh, and then listening out for the vote, it was genuinely exciting. I, I, and in a way that I possibly didn't think I'd be quite so caught up in it in the, uh, when, we, when we set off on that journey. Do you find that a lot with your audiences? That, 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 is there a point at which you realise, oh, OK, they're in this now? 
Yes. Yeah. People in the first uh, in the first half hour or so, people tend to be a little bit, understandably, maybe a bit reserved. Maybe they don't know the period very well. Maybe they think, oh, is this just a paperwork simulator? But as Owen said earlier, the company Parabolic Theatre has got a lot of experience of feeding back audiences' decisions to them later on to show them how they've impacted the show. And it sounds like you guys have had that experience. Once people realise, oh, what I did mattered, the second they do that, they're, they're really interested in doing a lot more. And certainly by the end, we have people, as, as you've touched on, from all bits of the political spectrum, bought into, well, whatever we decided to do tonight, we're going to try and hold the line. Let's let's do it together. And yeah, but there's real tense moments at the end of the show from, from all comers. Just finally, then, what, what next? You've done the war. You've done Union Crisis. What next? Uh, we're actually probably going into the future next. Uh, we did a just before the lockdown, we did uh, an extensive test of creating a show set on a starship. Uh, wanting to give people uh, uh, that sort of feeling of uh, being in Star Trek or similar sorts of TV series. Uh, and so we have been developing all through the lockdown uh, a very elaborate show, which would have a, a, a sort of movie quality starship set uh, and then letting our loose audiences loose in that to, into the world of intergalactic politics, uh, making all that stuff up for you know, you know, what, what the future might look like Amazing. in 100 years time. Amazing. Uh, so, so that, yeah. That's what you're doing next. Well, best of luck with it. We have to say we loved it. And I think it's now been extended, isn't there? There's new tickets are going on sale. Uh, so, so go and yes. see. If you can, go and have a go at Crisis. What Crisis? We'd really love to speak to you. Owen Kingston there, uh, the director, and Tom Black, the uh, one of the actors and uh, writers of, of the show. It's on at the New Diorama Theatre in uh, North London. Uh, it's the production by uh, Parabolic Theatre. I should have got that right at the beginning. Genuinely, it's a lot of fun. If you, if you like this, what we do on the show here, uh, it's basically exactly that, but played out in real time, and you can have a beer in your hand. Uh, and you enjoyed it as well, Henry. Uh, I loved it. Um, almost as almost as great as it has been to be here in the studio with you. <laughs> you look just like you look on Twitter. This is the uh, immersive theatrical experience that is uh, appearing on uh, on Times Radio. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. And we bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.